You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and as I so often say, this episode is fantastic. Dr. Amy Silver is a clinical psychologist, speaker, author and expert in fear. She's here to tell us all about it. What is fear? And when is it a good thing? We talk about how different fears turn up in different ways in all of our lives. And most importantly, she tells us how we can overcome our greatest fears and turn them into a positive in our life. You're going to really enjoy this one. Here's Dr. Amy Silver. Dr. Amy Silver, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. And I'm going to admit it right at the start. This is our second <laughs> go at this. Amy, I let you down badly last week. We had an appointment online and I just did not show up. I'm so embarrassed about that. I've apologized profusely to you off record. Wanted to come clean to my listeners. I'm far from perfect, but I think that's the very first time I've ever just not shown up. I just totally missed it on my calendar. What a loser, but you've been very gracious in that. Amy, we're going to talk about fear. And you're going to tell us all about what fear is, the the different categories of fear, how we frame it in our own minds, how we can use it to shape our lives positively and give us some great tips. But, you know, I'm going to admit something a little bit. I'm always a bit fearful talking to you. I've read your book. It's fabulous. But the most impressive thing about your book are the two lines of letters that you have after your name. (laughs) Tell me, give me a brief rundown of your academic career because you are a genuine, full-blown academic, aren't you? Well, do you reckon that was your fear voice then telling you last week not to show up? Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was. (laughs) Maybe you can break that. I'll lie down on the couch. You can break it down. Look, I've done a lot of studying. I got caught in academia for a long time. My background is in clinical psychology, so that in itself is a doctorate. And then I just kept going, just kept going. And I was very attracted to research and publishing in peer-reviewed journals. So yeah, I just kept going on that track. So yeah, there's a lot of letters, a lot of letters. You're a serious person (laughs) now. It's in such stark contrast to me. I skated through by the seat of my pants and in my bachelor degree at university about 150 years ago. And I, I've attempted to go back a couple of times and failed. And I'm just trying to go through the school of life rather than the real school that you've gone through. It's, it's very impressive. And we'll, we'll get to the real topic soon. But one of the most impressive things about all of that is you spent some time as a tutor and a researcher at Oxford. That must have been yeah, a super cool experience. That was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And I ended up living in Oxfordshire, which in itself is pretty cool in a real sort of thatched roofed you know, chocolate box village of a place. It was just gorgeous. And yeah, no, it was pretty cool to be, to get my little ID, you know, working at Oxford Uni. That was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Dr. Amy Silver, Silver, Oxford Oxford Uni. Yeah, no, it was a a real um, pinnacle of my career. And then, you know, it was a, it was a very prestigious place to be. And I was very, you know, clearly committed and was, was very, I guess I was on track for the a professorship, probably not at Oxford. I don't know. Maybe I'm kidding myself, but somewhere. And yeah, and then I threw it all in and decided to go and do some acting for a while because that had been something that I'd 
really loved at school, but had been encouraged not to do that, to, you know, do, do there's no, <laughs> there's no money in acting. And that has not changed. Except for the very few. It's a bit like tennis in that way, isn't it? The very few at the pointy end earn a ridiculous income yep. and everyone else is eating out of the Yeah, can. that's right. So, but I did sort of take that leap. And uh, I think that was a real life lesson for me, actually, was of certainty over what my future was in that world and uh, started to kind of question whether that was the right path and where I'd made the decision to do that. So, and fear really kind of came into that quite a lot um, because my initial doctorate was in fear, particularly around chronic fatigue and chronic illness and how fear gets in the way of people recovering from that. Because we, you know, when we have a chronic illness, we generally try to alter our habits to suit ability. But that behavioral change that we create doesn't always serve us or serve rehabilitation. So for example, in pain and fatigue, we pull back from doing exercise. And over time, that might lead to- Takes us further away from ever doing it. And so if people become fearful of doing exercise or moving or having a job or um, whatever the physical activity is, then that fear in itself becomes the thing that prevents people from moving forward. So I'd always been interested in fear, but when I switched out of psychology and into acting, which I thought was just like a a year off or something. Turned out it was about three years, but I had to sort of really live into that fear and really sort of go, wow, okay, this is really stepping into something that feels really uncomfortable, really unsafe and leaving my very clearly validated life, you know, in academia to sort of go and, you know, go and do auditions for adverts for Subway you know, sandwiches and things. (laughs) Yeah, high end, yeah, classy. You've created a really Um, nice segue. Amy's book, by the way, is called The Loudest Guest, which is a really clever title and no surprise there, given that you have the alphabet before and after your name. We're going to talk about fear and and help listeners and me probably understand what it is and, and how we can make sense of it in our own life. But I guess let's start at the very beginning. I liked a description of your in your book of fear and what it does in our in our brain and what it does to our body. All of these things that I I certainly recognise and they made beautiful sense the way you explained it in the book. Tell us a little bit about the physical and the psychological manifestation of fear. What do we see and feel? Well, it's interesting actually because what happens in our body is an alert a system that is activated when we perceive threat. And that threat initially from an evolutionary point of view was the threat of being eaten or the threat of being chased or whatever. Now it's the threat of being, or and, and also biologically, it was about the threat of being pushed away from the tribe, you know, and kind of you know, the, the threat of being rejected. And over time, yeah, exactly, because we wouldn't have lasted very long if we didn't have people or adults around us when we were born. So we we have this primed sense of threat, and then we have a threat response system. And that threat response system basically alerts us to the fact that we need to to do something. Something's going to happen, and we're going to need to to act. And so the blood moves away from our extremities, the brain kind of kicks into a chemical process alerts us by increasing our heart rate and increasing our oxygen intake and we are ready to act in some way. Now what our brain does or our clever part of our brain does 
is then interpret, well, what's that about? Like, what do we need to act in? What do we, you know, our body has, has sent us a signal that's very physical. And then we interpret what that is. And whether we interpret it as excitement or fear is actually a really interesting conversation because the symptoms are actually the same, but we may label them as different because of the images that we're picking up from the scenario or the stories that our brain is telling us or our predictions because we've got this clever brain. So there's sort of it's multi-layered, but at its, at its essence, it's a warning system that goes off in our body that sends us some really quite strong chemicals but it that's kind of in the real sort of panic mode but it doesn't have to be panic i'm going to get eaten it could also be panic because i've seen that that person is withdrawing their eye contact from me or it's panic because there's a risk of somebody taking control over me or trying to push their agenda over mine or there is some sort of threat perceived so it's even though we kind of think of fear as a big thing these little symptoms and little triggers happen at every kind of moment of our day. You know, there's this sort of an alert warning. And so tuning into that is actually one of the most important things that we can do is try and work out, well, what is fear for me? Where do I feel fear? Where does it get involved for me? It's an interesting concept. I love the way you describe it. The idea that when I'm in a situation that makes me scared, I, I'm fearful, my body responds that enables me to run, does all of those things. It, it pumps mm-hmm. the blood to my big muscles away from my brain. It makes my legs tingle. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel strong in the moment, but it also makes me feel dumb. And that's one of the real challenges for us in the modern age. It was great when we were running away from lions in the jungle. That was the skill that we need. But often now, some of the times that we put ourselves or the situations we find ourselves in that make us fearful are actually kind of human-to-human cognitive challenges. They might be a tricky situation with a boss or an argument with a spouse or, or standing in front of a large audience ready to give a presentation. We feel fear there and our caveman instincts are telling us to run and our body is prepared to run, but we actually want to think more. So I guess that's why it's that physical response to fear that makes us feel dumb in that moment. And we wish we could think more clearly and, and think our way out of it, but our body's stopping us from doing that. That's a bit of an unfair uh, evolutionary <laughs> paradox. It is when our fear system has been activated. And realistically, it's activated a lot at work. And what I'm on a mission to do is to help us understand that that's the reality because i think a lot of the time we have pretended that that isn't the reality you know that all our thoughts and all our conversations are rational and yet we are being completely commanded by our fear response and we don't know how to talk about it we don't know how to own it we don't know how to recover from it and all these things that i think you know, that knowledge is actually sitting in psychology and clinical psychology. And that was the impetus behind writing the book was like, uh, this stuff works, you know, this, this is how it works. Uh, This is how we calm that part of the brain down. This is how we understand and build a relationship with our fear so that it doesn't sideswipe us. This is how we talk about it and use it so that we can build on our own intelligence and our collective intelligence at work. And we're going to get to some of those really tangible tips later, but I I want to continue to pick it apart. It's a fascinating topic. I can't believe in over 150 episodes, I've never done an episode (laughs) on fear before. It is a fascinating topic. Now, how good are we, despite how prevalent it is in all our lives, and I'm going to ask you about that later, 
How good are we at recognizing fear in ourselves? Do we know fear when we feel it? Or do we as humans sometimes kid ourselves into thinking that it's actually a different emotion and therefore we start treating the wrong symptom or, or we diagnose ourselves incorrectly? I think with extremes, we're quite good at it. So we certainly kind of recognize panic for ourselves, you know, or when we get caught looping around in a worry or we get really caught in a doubt, you know, you're, you're just very doubting or even those obsessive compulsive kind of habits, you know, all of those things, I think really when they get to a point where they disable us, we recognize them. The more sort of insidious kind of choice, cho uh, places that fear interrupts our choice, I think it's actually quite difficult for us to spot that. I think that sometimes it shows up well, this is actually a finding that I had that happened after the book came out. People were reading it. <laughs> People were reading it and uh, saying to me, I never knew that those things were fear. You know, I thought that was me being irritated by people, or I thought that was, you know, frustration, or I thought that was protectiveness, you know, and sort of a lack of being able to trust people. I didn't see that as being fear. So they see, people see the response but they don't necessarily understand that that comes from a place of fear, a fear of rejection or a fear of being hurt or a fear of being let down or a fear of being controlled or reduced in some way. So I think the link between our behavior and fear is not something that we're always really clear on. I think there is worthiness in us getting clearer about how fear creates choices for us and how it gets in our way. Because we often say things like, you know, like I was, um, I was with, at my 13 year old's roller disco recently and, you know, she wanted me to sort of get roller skates as well and come on the, come on the, I wouldn't call it a court. What would you call it? A ring? I don't know. Whatever to come on. And, uh, I said, no, no, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to is what I said. To. And then while I was, yeah, I was watching them all. I was like, oh, I kind of do want to. Why did I say I didn't? You know, well, it was the fear of, being on there and me being on my own while she's on there with all her mates and you know and should I be on there I'm the grown-up and what if I'm really bad and what if I hurt myself and I fall down and it's all those fears but my immediate reaction was no I don't want to so really unpicking those opportunities to understand what happened did, did fear just come in and determine my action there without my consent and what habits have I developed where fear actually makes these decisions for me and I'm I'm not there? I, I called this book The Loudest Guest because I feel like it's, I have this analogy of there's this party going on in my head and fear is there, fear is one of the guests and there's whole heaps of other guests at the party, but fear is the most dominant one. And if fear is in control, fear tells me how loud to have the music, it tells me what to do with the lighting and I take a back seat. And fear chooses what's best for me because ultimately fear is there to try and help me. But if fear is totally in control, fear completely determines what the party is. And I'm in the back and I don't realize. And so I think that recognition for ourselves is crucial because we want to be the host of our own party. We don't want to give over any of the decision making to an emotion without our consent and so we have to get deeper into understanding and recognizing fear. And I think it looks different for you and it looks different for me because it comes from 
the place of our stories. And so we have an individual responsibility to understand when is my fear triggered? How does it make me feel? What action do I do? You know, do I listen to what fear says or do I choose? And, you know, what are the habits around this that that I can use to help me understand you know, my next opportunities, my say, next you know, choices, my next decisions. The, the type of fear that we acknowledge and the type of fear that we don't, we, we diagnose it differently. For example, if you're swimming along in the ocean and a shark pops up in front of you, that's fear. And you're probably willing to acknowledge that, yes, I'm scared of this shark right now. You're probably not going to kid yourself and say, ah, oh, you know what? I don't feel like having a swim after all. You acknowledge that in your face fear. And the stuff that you don't acknowledge, is, is there a link yeah. to the stuff that's drawn out over time, the stuff that you experience regularly and at low levels, is that the stuff that you start to kid yourself into? Like the difference between a shark in the ocean and someone who's fearful of social interactions because they're they're fearful of making a fool of themselves or people not liking them, for example. Do they start to dress that up as something different in their yeah. head? I think you've raised a really interesting point. I think what happens is that there are some socially sanctioned fears and some non-socially sanctioned fears. So it's much easier to say, oh, I was frightened of that shark. Then it's easy, and it's harder to say something like, I'm nervous of trusting that person, or I'm nervous of showing that person how I feel. And those two things are just social constructs that we've kind of layered on that make one thing easier than another. Like, for example, for men, you know, we we sort of allow fears to be expressed through anger. So anger is a secondary emotion. So people feel frightened, they feel under threat, and so they get angry. They look angry, but really they're scared. But really they're scared, yeah. And yet it's easier and more acceptable for a woman to have expression around their fears from a fear position. So I think this is partly cultural, partly created, and partly sort of behaviorally driven in terms of it becomes normal to, you know, have those fears or accepted, so therefore it is. And so there's more little fears that we then grow into become kind of, oh, that's what women are like, that's what men are like, or she's shy, she's reserved, or she's this. And so we kind of label it within an external framework, you know, that's about gender or it's about personality. You know, it often gets caught in personality land and, you know, it doesn't really need to be. It's a different thing. It's interesting, the social construct, the socially acceptable and not acceptable things to be scared Mm. of. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. Hey, is there any such thing, Amy, as a fearless person, someone who's not scared of anything? Uh, I think no, and I think it's a misdemeanor to expect that we, or I think there's often a desire to be fearless. I think people are waiting to become fearless before they do something, wishing to be fearless, and I think that's the wrong strategy. I think, you know, that definitely my work suggests that we need to get closer to our fear and understand where it is in our in our world so that we can have this relationship with it where we can calm it down and evaluate it. It's got great pieces of information for us, but to be fearless is to be stupid, I think. It's a really, you know, it's actually 
saying I can live without risk. I don't have to worry about any risk. You know, it's all, all is good. So I don't think fearless. Yeah, I don't think fearlessness. I think it's it's almost like the ultimate imposter syndrome. You know, it leads to the ultimate imposter syndrome. It's kind of narcissistic potentially and dangerous. So I, fearless. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask. You know, I'm jumped jump to a question I was going to ask later, but I'll preface it with this: a, a bit of self exposure. I've been a dad for nearly eight years and something very interesting has happened to me since I became a father. I have three kids now, all of them beautiful, of course, and perfectly behaved all of the time. (laughs) I'm scared of things I was never scared of before. I think of things often as I'm going to sleep that I've never thought of before. And someone helped me frame that really positively once. It's That's your subconscious telling you what to be careful about, the things that it's your subconscious telling you what's important to you and telling you what to be careful about. I mean, everyone listening has experienced the phenomena, whether rarely or regularly, that you think the worst things as you're drifting off to sleep. And and <laughs> since being a father, all of those things surround my kids, you know, the worst things that could happen in everyday situations. And this is this is not a, a an issue that plagues me or dominates my 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 sleep pattern, but it's certainly something that happens regularly. And because of that one bit of golden advice I got, that that's my brain telling me what to be careful of. I'm able to frame that as I'm drifting off to sleep, and I think about these things, and, and it's just saying, "Hey, that's you reminding yourself to be really careful with the kids around the road, or be really careful with the kids at the beach, etc." What do you make of that experience? Is my experience a typical one? I think, uh, well, definitely for parents, but also for all of us at the moment going through, you know, the second year of COVID, we have never been closer to fear because we have had this increase in our awareness about our vulnerability. But our vulnerability has always been there. It's just we didn't know about it. And now we know. And so we have an opportunity to now go, okay, so now we know, eyes open, what do we learn from that? How do we make decisions carefully? How do we use that information and see that risk and make good choices? And I think what you're describing is this yin and yang of what fear is. And really, we could play this game with lots of the other emotions too. We could talk about sadness as well. You know, without a sadness, there would be no joy. Without, you know, we, we have to have both edges, like otherwise they don't work. Like, we would not be in a good place if we didn't have fear. We would be overly comfortable and not aware of the risks. And so that experience that you've described is just allowing you to have visibility on what fears may give you as an opportunity to evaluate cleverly your environment. So using fear to kind of help you manipulate your choices. I think it's, yeah, super smart. We've touched on it there. You, you spoke about it in your book, this really powerful idea. And in, in, in a lot of ways, it's the central idea of your book that there is a difference between people who are able to harness the power of fear and mm-hmm. use it in a useful way and people who let it control them. What's the difference between those people and what role can fear play positively in our life? I'm just going to shift one of the words that you use because I don't think it's people who because I don't think this is linked to a type of personality. I think it's going to be relevant for some of your fears and some not of your fears. So like I would have quite a lot of fears in the physical, in my physical safety. You know, That's why I didn't jump on the, uh, on the rollerblading thing and why I don't jump out of planes and, 
you know, do all those kind of things because I've got a very low tolerance to fear in those in that area. Whereas in other areas, you know, public speaking or doing things uh, where, you know, I'm trying to elevate my career and and then doing something risky, that's like, bring it on, you know, like I'm, you know, so it's not me, it's my fear and my relationship with my fear in those different spaces. But yeah, I think it is a very clear pattern, regardless of where the fear is, to understand and get this relationship with the fear saying, where are you helping me? And where are you hindering me? Where can I use you? And where are you using me? And I talk about this almost like fear is a person, you know, so I kind of have this. And in the book, I talk about like how to do this, how to help you get closer to this fear voice so that you can actually see it as a person so that you can, you know, externalize the dialogue that you're having with your fear voice so that you can start to debate with it, you know, and try and work out. But fear is a beautiful guide to a growth opportunity. It is a beautiful way to help you feel alive and connected to your experience that you're having right now or the future experience that's this bigger version of you on the other side of it. It's something that's exciting and full of yeah, life. It's it's life itself, that sensation of blood pumping and the energy. And it's sort of like whenever I feel a fear in an area that I'm doing well with, I kind of go, oh God, like God, there's the line of fear. Oh my God, now I've got to get across it. And like, you know, but it's like roll up my sleeves and get on with it. It's like, it's motivating. And I feel proud of myself afterwards. And it's a real buzz, you know, before I'm thinking, I can't do it. And then after I'm like, I'm amazing. I did it. It's fantastic. You know, I'm inspired by impressing people. You know, I want to impress people. That's I, I want to do well. I want people to think good things about me. And and so I work hard to do that. You know, that's a fear that I'm using to get the best out of myself. I have to watch the edges of that because you know, the downside of not having any fear is that I get too safe and I don't, I'm just too comfortable and I don't push forward with anything. But the downside of too much fear is exactly what you said before. The clever part of my brain switches off and I cannot activate the best of me because I've got caught allowing fear to make those decisions for me. So it's really becoming scientific about it for yourself, you know, observing yourself and kind of going, where are the edges either way? And am I in that sweet spot where it's not too safe and it's not too fearful and I'm able to maximize myself through management of harnessing the fear rather than allowing the fear to take control of me? I'm really glad you pulled me up on that point. It's not people who, because within ourselves we have those fears that we enjoy and embrace and master and fears that paralyze us. Yeah. I'm really interested in the difference. You make the beautiful point in your book. If you are paralyzed, I can't remember the example you used, but say public speaking and it makes you freeze and you can't think and you make a fool of yourself and you're scared of making a fool of yourself and you do everything to avoid it. But then you look at someone else who embraces it and you're really impressed by that. Wow, that person is so amazing. And sure, they might be, they might have a skill, but they're not amazing. They just don't have a fear in that area. And I, I really That's right. get that point, but I'm fascinated in what's the difference. For example, in, in my own world, so I have this crazy fear of heights and it's gotten worse as I've gotten older to the point where my whole family knows about it. And I'm scared I'm passing it on <laughs> to my kids actually, but we don't book holidays above the second floor. And it, it really makes it difficult to book holidays. And I look at balconies and I think, 
I wouldn't be able to sleep in that apartment. I wonder how yeah, on earth people yeah. do it. And you know what? I'm, you know, I'm kind of okay with that. We can manage our life around it. But I look at that as a fear that I, I am unwilling to address. There is nothing in that to mm-hmm. address it for me. I'm, I'm happy to avoid it. But I look at other people who can stand and lean mm-hmm. over a balcony and I think, oh my God, how do you do that? But then I remember there are things in my life that I do like public speaking. And one of my, my favorite hobbies is ocean swimming. So I stand on the line you know, at, at a race. I don't feel scared. I feel excited. But it's the same emotions, right? But this is a fear exactly. slash excitement that I'm willing to take on because I'm invigorated by it. What's the difference between that and heights? Why can I be invigorated by the excitement of public speaking and swimming in the ocean, but absolutely paralyzed by the excitement of standing on a high balcony where someone else who's perfectly sane might have the exact opposite experience with those two fears? Well, I hate this question for so many reasons, because mainly because though I, if I, I have so many fears too, like I'm frightened of spiders or I'm frightened of physical stuff. And the reason I don't like the question is because it's such an easy solution, but I just don't want to do it. So <laughs> the solution to move live <laughs> it's, on podcast. It's, it's a very simple thing and it's, it's just down to your behavior but you do have to have the motivation. So you you clearly said, I'm okay with it. And I most of the time say, I'm okay with being frightened of spiders. And it's okay until it's not okay. You know, it's okay until you ha- you don't have choice. You know, I mean, what happens if your keynote speech is on, you know, a high floor or something happens where your fears kind of start to collide or your children go off and they are on a, on a higher floor and you're not and you didn't have any control over that then suddenly you're going to meet that fear and you haven't primed yourself in preparation. So we had a huntsman, which if you, if you don't live in Australia, it's quite a large spider that was in our car. And I honestly realized <laughs> that in, in, in a, t- on a freeway. <laughs> yeah, that in that moment I could actually kill everybody in the car because that's how reactive my body is to that fear. And so Yes, I can deal with it and I probably should start to face into it and prepare myself for it. And if you think about any of the fears that you have moved through, you've moved through them with action. You are never going to move through a fear by avoiding ever, 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 ever. It's only going to get worse. And so the solution for fear and whether that is something specific like ours, you know, heights and spiders, they're easy things like declaring your emotions, you know, being comfortable, taking a risk in trust. Those are the more sort of hard, they're not specific to, you know, a thing you've really got to work and stretch into that fear. But all of the fears, the only way to move through them is action. And in the book, I talk about the behavioral experiments that you need to set up. So that's the way that we do this is we deliberately face into our fears with actions that we can tolerate, that they don't get scary, these actions that we pull away from them. But, you know, you religiously, you know, you you stick to the plan, you know. So if you went to the third floor tomorrow and you managed to do that and the fourth floor the next day and you just kept doing it and if you couldn't, if you weren't ready to go up to the fifth floor, you just kept doing the fourth floor, you know, and you just keep pushing until you are telling your fear voice, look, you know, you're you're firing off, you're telling me to to do these things and I'm not 
going to do what you're doing, what you're telling me to do. I'm taking control. I'm going to move forward with action. As we talk through some of these, and I don't want them to sound flippant that, you know, the, the idea of being scared of public speaking or fearful of the ocean and sharks or being at heights. There at my examples, you've talked about spiders and, and roller skating. Mm. People who are listening right now <laughs> from your clinical experience, your experience working with people, I think chunks of this, I kind of asked you in an email and I, I noticed you ignored me. You probably just wanted to hang me out to dry. Are there archetypes of, of fear or people who have fears or, or is there just the full gamut of things that people find fearful and, and affect their life? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question and I don't know the answer. So I'd love to talk it through. <laughs> and there are, you know, when we get down to the clinical end, so people who get a diagnosis for some sort of fear or anxiety, there's really clear categories. Right. So there's something like there's panic, you know, which is a very different disorder from social phobia, that which is different again from health anxiety, which is different again from OCD or PTSD or just general, there are different diagnoses that we can give if people have demonstrated enough of the characteristics that are highlighted in the, in the textbooks. And so at the clinical end, we get into categorizing symptoms, but anxiety or fear or however, whatever label works for you is a spectrum. And we move up and down that spectrum in a number of different areas. So you kind of in the email, you sort of talked about, you know, there might be people who have physical uh, things or social things. And, and I think that's true. There are different areas that form our spectrums and our spectrums may be different on those different areas. But I, I don't know whether there's archetypes or, you know, personality styles. I, I'm not a believer in personality. I think, you know, it's a deep seated, long standing behavioral choice that we have started to create. But I think we can change a lot of what we kind of characteristically call our personality by changing our behavior. It may take a while and it may be difficult, but I think if the motivation is there, we can move the dial on any of that by consistently a approaching ourselves as little actions, little actions that create a new style. You know what? I'm just about to ask you about these hot tips that you're going to leave us with. But I just want to share with you, I've just had an aha moment about my own life. I've been wondering out loud to my wife why my fear of heights has gotten worse. And at the same time, I've just said to you, look, I'm happy to avoid it and manage it in my <laughs> life. That's why my fear has gotten worse because I totally avoid it. So on the rare occasion when I'm confronted by it, it's even worse than it used to be because I've spent 45 years avoiding it as, as much as I possibly can. So that's why my fear has gotten worse. Absolutely. I'm, I'm away from it. Because it's inaction. And, you know, I actually was uh, thinking about this, about my sister who is, so I'm I'm 49, she is 42 or 43, I don't know, something like that, 43. And she's just got on a, she just bought a push bike. And, you know, she's, and she hasn't been on a bike since she was a kid. And she's been so nervous about riding, you know, and getting back on that bike. And it just takes that action, you know. And if you haven't done it for a long time, of course, it's going to feel massive. It feels massive. You know, if she'd have kept riding all her life, it wouldn't have done. It wouldn't feel massive at all. It's just a thing. And I think, you know, again, I've been talking a lot about fear and COVID and returning to the office and all the rest of it and returning to. And it's just we have not been doing it. 
you know. And so, of course, it's scary. Of course, it's weird. Of course, it feels the like this. You think and about it, and you put it off, and wonder how it's going to be. The more fearful you become of it through inaction. Yeah, the avoidance is the solution that fear wants because fear is frightened of fear. Yeah. Doesn't want to be in any more fear. So it's going to say to you, right? It's either time to avoid or defend and attack. You know, those are the two choices it's going to give you. So push away or don't ever show up. And I'm sure all types of fear are subject to that phenomena. But for some reason, it makes me think that a social fear might be the worst of those. If you're paralyzed by social interaction and what could go wrong and how you'll look, so you put it off, then of course you get more fearful and you put it off further and you get further and further away from it. And it seems like this horrible big green monster through inaction. Yeah. Is there anything in that? Is is that social fear more yeah. affected by this than others or is that just jumped into my head? No, I think it's a big one. I think it's huge. And I think there are what we call safety behaviors that go with some of these fears that don't help. They give the illusion that they're creating safety if you can tolerate the fear. So for example, in social phobia, a really, really common behavior that we do to sort of appease our fear is that we may have a drink or we may kind of uh, give a time limit or we may say, I can only pop in because I've got this other thing. Or you may even want to sit in a certain position or you may want to stand with a particular person or I can't go unless I'm with somebody that I know is not going to leave my side. And so we make all these rules which then become normal. So you know, it feels weird to go out to a restaurant on your own, or it feels weird, you know, it feels weird. We've, we've kind of made these behavioral choices that are fears choices, not ours. So we may want to sort of, you know, be really relaxed and happy and meet people. But if fear is in control and telling us, you know, what to do, where to stand, and you can only go if you do this, and, you know, you're living through that set of behaviors that's really designed to manage fear, but it, it doesn't manage it. It actually makes it all worse. You're just putting yourself in a, in a really hard position. Fabulous. Yeah. That's fear's choice. I love that. And and fear breeds fear. I can't remember what you said exactly before, but- mm. uh, Well, fear, if fear is, the biggest fear that fear has is more fear, you know, so we become fearful of fear. All right. That's all very clear to me. All right. So- People are listening to this right now. They're totally engaged with what you said. It's incredible wisdom. They're living with the fear and they want to take this step to overcoming it, to not letting the loudest guest at the party dominate the party. What are some of these really tangible steps they can take? So in essence, what we want to do is change our relationship with fear and then we want to control fear. So the first three tips that I have are about changing our relationship with fear. And the first really is your tip about, you know, what is fear? When do we get fear? And and so the first tip is about recognition, learning when, where, why, what stories your fear uses, what images come up for you in your brain, what the patterns are. So really getting close to recognizing what fear is for you and how it presents in your body. Then understanding this fear response from a self-compassionate perspective. So understanding that this is the way you were designed. This is part of the evolutionary process. And thank goodness it's there. So there's nothing wrong with you for having this fear. There is nothing wrong with you. And there is nothing mean or nasty about fear. It is there to do a job. It is trying to keep you alive. So let's approach it with self-compassion and, and almost welcome it in because it's coming anyway. 
It's there. Let's treat it with kindness and turn towards it with with self-compassion rather than feeling ashamed of it or guilty for it or whatever. So self-compassion is the second tip. Third tip would be to understand that what the fear voice wants and what you want are not necessarily the same. So getting close to understanding how and why fear is separate from you so that you can stand back and kind of go, is that what I want? Is this what I want to be safe, comfortable? And just like you just did with the heights example, is that conversation with yourself kind of like, hang on a minute, I'm doing what fear wants me to do. Does that serve me? You know, that story of I didn't want it anyway, kind of, you know, is that true? You know, or is it something that I I can separate from and evaluate, which is moving into the fourth step. And this is where we really get to control fear is turning towards what fear says and evaluating. Is it true? Is it useful? So fear is saying, stay away from any uh, heights. Do not do it. It's a risky thing to do. Now we want to evaluate, is that useful? Is it helpful? Is it true? Is it false? In what circumstances? What is this blanket kind of rule it's giving me? Can I evaluate it and make some smart decisions? So the fifth stage is about making a decision then. Okay, so I'm evaluating it. I want to stick to what fear says. Yep, that's a sensible idea. I'm going to stick to what it says. It's a useful message. It's a useful warning. Or potentially, let's move away from it. It's not a useful warning. It's setting me up for failure in the future because it's controlling my choices and I'm not preparing for what I know is in my future. I mean, just again, just to to use you because you're on the couch, you know that you will be in a situation where you have to go up higher than the second floor. You know that's in your future. So what decisions can you make now that help you move towards that deliberately, which takes us into the last stage, which is experimentation. So if you've got an experiment set up that you try and live to, you create your now, what are you comfortable with now? And what would be, so you give that a zero and then you kind of work out what's your number 10? What would number 10 look like? Well, number 10, where I really wasn't frightened, would go to the top of the tallest building in my city and looking out the window. That's what number 10 looks like. Okay. And then you work out what are those steps in between? What do they look like? And and what would number one look like? Well, number one would look like the third floor. Uh, who would I need with me to do that? Where would I need to be? What does the building need to look like? What can I do to actually push through deliberately to that next step? So we push through with these baby steps, these little tiny experiments. So we're heading towards that number 10, but each step is within your control. You are choosing. And anytime you meet a step that's too big, you break it down again and you kind of go, okay, fear fear took over there and and pulled me back. I want to gain control. What can I do to to step it down, break it down even more? And really this whole game is this game of playing with your fear so that it's this sort of, all right, let's go. Let's use this. Let's work out more. Let's play. It's a playful thing rather than um, feeling limited by it. Yeah, let's use it. Let's work out where we're heading and and remind fear all the time, look, I can take control back. You know, you are a guest in my party. You are not the host. I am the host. You are the guest. No matter how loud you get, I'm going to hear what you say, but I'm moving on. And so action. 
baby steps. Andy, that is terrific advice. Look, I have so thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Dr. Amy Silver. I told you it was a good one. I don't think there's a person alive who can't relate to most, if not all, of what Amy had to say. I love the way she explains all the important concepts about understanding and using fear as a positive force in our life. And these tips, awesome. The first three were all about changing our relationship with fear. Recognize fear in yourself, number one, when, where, and why. Number two was a bit of self-compassion. Understand that this is the way you're designed. There's nothing wrong with you. Fear is just doing its job. Welcome it. Number three, understand that fear is separate from you. Ask yourself, is this what I want or what fear wants? The next three tips were all about controlling fear. Number one, evaluate. Is it true or useful? Number two, make a decision. Is it a useful warning or not? And number three, finally, experiment. Take baby steps. Get up to the third floor of a building and see how that goes. Get comfortable there and then move to the fourth, the fifth and the sixth. Remember, you're the host of the party. It's your party. Fear is simply a guest. As always, I'll share those tips and the rest of the lessons I took from my conversation with Amy on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theories and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.